1: Synthetic biology. It's one of those stranger things. Biology is the study of all that is natural and living. Synthetic, well, isn't. You may think of replicants, the Borg, and let's not forget the symbiote known as Venom. But they are all based in fiction. The reality of synthetic biology is far more awesome. And it's already happening. This week, we're going to learn about synthetic biology and how it can be used to improve our continually dwindling food supply. We'll talk with a researcher who has explored how we are losing our food and the potential for synthetic biology to restore what we've lost. And in our SAS class, we're going to talk with a researcher who will tell us what to expect from synthetic biology in the future. I'm Jason the Germ Guy, Tetra, and I'm going to morph your mind to appreciate SynBio. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. When you hear the word synthetic biology, you may immediately think of science fiction, as I said earlier. Or perhaps some of the flashier news headlines like clone pets and brain-computer interfaces. But the reality is that the potential for synthetic biology is far greater than what you have been led to believe. One of the most important uses for SynBio happens to be food security. As you heard on the previous episode of the show, we need to ensure sustainability using all the options available to us. Of course, that's if you believe there's a problem. And if you're still questioning the severity of food security, our first guest is here to tell you, it's probably worse than you think. Her name is Lenore Newman, and she is the Canada Research Chair in Food Security and Environment at the University of the Fraser Valley. She's written a book on the plight of our food supply called Lost Feast, Culinary Extinction and the Future of Food. It's a fascinating and yes, frightening exploration of how our food and cuisine is not just dwindling, it's disappearing. The effect is so great that she uses a rather odd analogy to help us get a grip on the problem. She suggests our ability to eat is no different than knowing a language. And if we don't keep up with it, we lose it. How is cuisine like a language? Well, anthropologists often describe human
2: language as doing two things. And that's, their, of course, a means of communicating with each other. But they're also a way of seeing the world in that each language sort of its own little worldview. For example, each language has words that have no translation. So a food-related example would be the French word terroir, which explores kind of a deep connection between food and place and soil and history, geography and culture, but there's no real English translation. You kind of have to be French to get it. So is cuisine a language? Well, we use it to communicate, for sure, because we welcome people with food, we care for people with food, we share with food, we talk to each other through food. But it also each cuisine represents a unique way of living in a place and interacting with the resources of a region and mapping culture onto geography. So like a language as well, cuisine changes over time. And so... I basically see it as a language where the individual foods are the words.
1: That's fascinating. Does that mean then that locavores would essentially be your dialects?
2: (laughs) Oh, exactly. And, you know, certainly if you've ever been down to New Orleans and – dug into Cajun culture, oh, they yeah. have a language. They also have a
1: culinary language. Nobody does jambalaya like they do down there. <laughs> oh, no. I think you actually have to be there for it to work that way. All right. I want to get into the idea of extinctions as much as I would love to talk about gumbo. And the fact is that when we talk about extinctions of animals, two things that come up regularly are populations of humans and other predators and then overconsumption if we happen to find them tasty. But in your book, you bring up an interesting, if perhaps controversial, reason, and that's farming, which is kind of the basis for our entire food supply, for the most part. How is it that farming has harmed our cuisine's language?
0: Well,
2: I find it fascinating. We kind of somehow forget that farming is the largest impact upon the surface of the planet by humans. 14% of the Earth's land surface is in crops, and over 25% is grazed by animals. So the old story that an alien comes to Earth and meets a farmer first is probably accurately, you know, it's probably accurate, because most of the human part of the Earth is farms and all around the world wildland is filled with the raw building blocks of cuisine the the crops we don't even know about yet and it's being cleared to grow our monocultural crops i mean the amazon is a great example right now and we've favored a few varieties of crops as well so we don't have the diversity even than we did a hundred years ago and in the book i talk about how for most of our major crops, we have maybe 5% of the varieties we had in 1900. But it doesn't have to be this way. Technologies such as synthetic biology and similar things can allow us to vastly decrease the amount of land needed to produce food, something we sometimes refer to as rewilding. And so we can move to a world where we don't have this giant footprint. But Really, right now, if you look at the planet, farming is the thing that really stands out.
1: And in that context, I keep thinking about the Amazon. We're hearing all about the fires that were happening over the summer. And most of them seem to be started by people who wanted to use that land for farming. And I'm thinking is, we're sacrificing our lungs for our gastrointestinal system, and it just makes no sense.
2: Oh, exactly. And... You know, it's such a tragic example because it doesn't need to happen. And even 10 or 20 years from now, as technology moves forward, we're not going to be producing beef by clearing tropical forest. But we're just in that transition period.
1: And I guess here in Canada, the idea of the Amazon being turned into flames for agriculture... Sure, it's bad for the environment, but we may not think of it from a farming perspective until you realize that trade is a huge issue. And I'm wondering, does trade really fit into how bad we are going when it comes to farming and the loss of our cuisine?
2: Well, it it certainly does, Jason. And it's funny because I'm a big fan of trade. Uh, Trading in food is one of our oldest um oldest trade patterns you know we've been moving spices around for 10,000 years and when it's done well it provides us with a healthy diversity of plentiful food at a reasonable cost and it allows us to focus on producing what we do best in each region but something's been lost in the shift away from seasonal production of a wide diversity of varieties And we see seasonal eating coming back a bit. And I think that's a great thing, because if we really rely on a handful of crops and move them all over the world to deal with the problem of needing food, we're really throwing away a lot of the the technology that we developed in making crops that would live in different times of the year. And I'm not saying everyone should go back to surviving in their own little valley, but we can be smarter about it. And we can pick local alternatives, and I've been doing a bit of work on plant milks, and they're often treated fairly the same. But if you look at something like oat milk, we can make that here. If you look at something like soy milk, well, we have to clear forest in the tropics to make that. So, we can make smarter choices to use our own resources locally.
1: What about the idea of invasive species? How has invasion led to this reduction in diversity in food supply?
2: Well, it's definitely a factor, and it's, it's an interesting one. I sort of see it as a side effect of our, our endless wandering around the world. And some species have very successfully hitched a ride with us. And I, I lived in New York for a short while and got to be familiar with their rats, which are Something. Of <laughs> the course, pizza rat forever. <laughs> yeah, and you know they're forever. They're dragging pizza around, and I mean they're they're kind of they're kind of a menacing little creature. But you got to take your hat off to them that we built them a city and they just moved right in. And what I sort of feel and locally here it's the European blackberry where once it comes in you you can't get rid of them. <laughs> you just have yeah. to be happy they have a fruit on them that you can eat. And now the downside is they outcompete local varieties. And so we lose something. We lose diversity, we lose potential crops that we may not even know about. We probably can't do a lot about it in the long term. In that as we move around we take plants with us. But certainly island regions such as Hawaii, New Zealand really should try and they do try because they have this incredible species richness. And they're really vulnerable to invasives because often they don't have predators there. So I see it as something that probably we can't do a lot about it in the long term, but we do need to at least keep track of what we might be losing and make sure we protect it best we can.
1: What about the pollinators, though? Bees seem to be the linchpin for being able to maintain crops in numerous regions around the world. Do you think that we could focus on having those insects grow and be maintained instead of the collapses that we're seeing in order for us to continue to maintain those diverse local species even if we have those invaders?
2: Uh, this The story is just bad. And I looked at this winter's statistics and 37% of bee colonies in the U.S. were lost over the winter. And for the people whose livelihood depends on pollination and or raising pollination, it's, it's, it's not sustainable. You can't lose that many bees every winter and stay in business. And that's a big problem for us because our crops are so dependent on them. I think ultimately, and we don't really know what causes colony collapse. We have a lot of theories. But I think really we're trying to treat the symptom, And ultimately, we have to move away from a system where we move most of the continent's bees around on trucks. And really, I know how I feel when I get off a long haul flight. And I can't imagine what the bees feel like after they cross the continent on a truck, trapped in their hive with 10,000 of their friends. Probably they're feeling a little rough and they're much more likely to die. And really the hives are supposed to stay in place. Bees are very local. They map out the terrain. They know where everything is. They know where to get water, where to get food. I think that's where we have to go back to. And the solution is diversifying crop bases so that the hives can survive in place. Because the flaw now, if you're in the Central Valley of California during almond season, there's tons of food for bees. A week later, there's nothing for them to eat because the almonds are finished. And so you have to move them somewhere else. We need to look at how do we make sure there's enough diversity in the landscape. We can just leave the bees where they are.
1: So let me ask you this. Pollinators, possibly something helpful. Changing our farming habits, possibly something that's helpful. Trade, doing it right, that's going to be helpful. Everything I'm hearing, though, really points to this anthropogenic era that we currently are living in. I have to ask you... Are we really to blame?
2: (laughs) Well, I think maybe the the key thing is we have to change and we will because we can't work without the food system. And a study out of the University of Guelph last year showed fairly categorically there's no way to scale the food system to give everyone on earth, a North American diet with the heavy animal products, heavy calories, So a sustainable food system is going to require a mix of kind of old technology, but also very new technology. And we can see that new world emerging. So, for example, the world's cows require a grazing area as large as the continental U.S., and that's simply unsustainable. And I think the cuisines of the future are going to largely be a blend of advanced technology with diverse regional production. And I will say they're going to be plant-based.
1: Trying to come up with a solution to one of the world's greatest problems, human nature, is one of the major reasons for the development of new solutions, including synthetic biology. Of course, whenever something new comes around, there are always going to be detractors, and I'm sure that you know about the ones I'm about to mention. We tend to call them the no-GMO movement. GMO means genetically modified organisms. I'm not going to tell you that this is a bad position to have. After all, there are some examples of genetic engineering that should never have been given a green light to proceed. But synthetic biology is a very good thing when it's done right. It's helped us to develop faster and cheaper ways to make medicines. It's helped us to identify ways to reduce our dependency on petrochemicals. And yes, it has helped us to improve food sustainability. During the writing of her book, Lenore Newman came across numerous foods that were either based on or reliant on the use of synthetic biology, and she's about to share some of those with us. But I do want to offer a word of warning first. If you happen to be a person hoping to avoid those GMOs, your choices are about to become a little bit slimmer. You bring up synthetic biology a few times in the book, but let's quickly go over what it is, and perhaps more importantly for the listeners, what it isn't.
2: Well, that, that isn't an easy question, Jason. It's, I mean, on the surface, synthetic biology focuses on creating technologies that design and build biological organisms. So it's redesigns and fabricates biological components that probably don't exist in the natural world but where that gets fuzzy is around the boundaries between synthetic biology and genetic engineering and genetic engineering might change genes to add or remove properties but synthetic biology like works on a bigger scale so We could see genetic engineering as a tool we might or might not use in synthetic biology. We might, for example, genetically alter yeast to produce casein proteins so we can make cheese without cows, and that's definitely synthetic biology using genetic engineering. But we might also grow cells in a vat to make a burger, which is synthetic biology, but not genetic engineering.
1: I keep hearing about people wanting to know, why is a plant burger red? Why is it bleeding? And I try and tell them, but you actually talk about it in the book. Please share, how is a plant burger bleeding? Okay, well,
2: you can do that a couple of ways. Now, one of them isn't synthetic biology at all. If you buy a Beyond Burger, they do that with beets, which that's old tech. (laughs) It's uh, just very clever use of old tech. A beet is red, so their burger is red. But if you eat an Impossible Burger, and I will say the Impossible Burger is much closer in flavor profile, what they've done is created heme, which is a blood-like compound, by making it in the lab. They take uh, a bacteria, genetically engineer it to produce heme, and then they put that into the burger. So the burger actually bleeds when you, uh, when you cook it. And, uh, it's quite amazing what you can do with those technologies.
1: And tasty too,
2: <laughs> I have to say. It is. It is. Impossible foods. They've really knocked one out of the park. And, uh, I think Canadians for the most part, it hasn't reached here yet, but it soon will be. And of course it's spreading across America very quickly.
1: So now that you've ruined it for pretty much anybody who is anti-GMO, are there any foods out there that also incorporate synthetic biology? So we just round it out.
2: Well, I think, and now this is really going to ruin it for the anti-GMO crowd. Uh, One of the best examples involves almost all cheese in North America. When we make cheese, we need a clotting agent to separate curds and whey. And for millennia, rennet was used for this, for the most part, and it's extracted from the lining of the stomach of a calf. Primary enzyme in rennet uh, driving this process is called chymosin, and it acts on milk proteins like casein and makes milk curdle. But by the 1960s, something serious was happening. We really liked cheese, and we wanted more and more cheese, and the supply of calf stomach was falling. So what to do? Well, some plants and microbes produce enzymes that are close to rennet. They look a little bit similar, but they don't quite work. So in the 80s, scientists figured out how to transfer a gene from bovine cells to make chymosin in microbes such as mold and yeast. And these genetically modified uh, microbes allow us to produce enough chymosin to make cheese and it's often called vegetable rennet and it was approved for use as a food it was the very first product like it that was approved and 90 percent of the cheese in the united states is made using this um, fermentation produced chymosin now is the cheese a gmo well Not really, but it's produced by a product that is most definitely a synthetic biology product. And without that, cheese would be exorbitantly expensive. Only the rich would be able to eat cheese at this point in history. So, you know, the interesting thing is GMO, people who are anti-GMO avoid this issue like the plague because no one wants to give up that cheese.
1: Now, one of the big concerns that we hear about when it comes to synthetic biology and also GMOs is the fact that they're unsafe. Now, the FDA has something called GRACE, generally regarded as safe and effective. Does everything that comes out of synthetic biology have to also adhere to this before it can be used in our foods?
2: Yes, Uh, in general it does. And uh, so, for example, that chymosin was the very first product that uh, was uh, that got that designation. And of course, the heme used in the Impossible Burger has also gone through that, uh, that process. And so I think, you know, people do tend to have a bit of a fear of the new, and we know that. But what I tend to remind people is when you see a cow standing in a field, that is a, that is a technology. It is not a natural, quote, unquote, animal. Um, cows are descended from aurochs, which are now extinct, and they're entirely a product of breeding. And that's basically genetic modification done kind of slowly. So I also think that uh, what we're seeing in our studies is there's kind of a fading fear of GMOs. Uh, younger generations are very immersed in technology and science, and I think when the day comes that we can have cruelty free products at a cheaper price and the quality is better and the health outputs are better, uh, I think the public is just going to vote with their wallet.
1: And what about schmeat, lab cultured meat? What do you think about that?
2: Well, you know, I'm going to turn the question on its head a little bit and say, and of course, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I do think first thing we're going to see is milk. And uh, I'm currently doing a project funded by Genome BC to study the potential for milk produced without cows using yeasts and molds. Um, you use the yeast to produce, instead of alcohol, which yeast normally produces, you produce casein protein. And the funny thing is, it's moving so fast, this research, that we can't really keep up with it in our lab, keeping ahead of the research. It's um, By the time we started surveying, Perfect Day Foods was selling ice cream made with fermented yeast-produced milk. And so it, in a few years, it's gone from Star Trek to basically, it, you can buy it on the streets of L.A. today, literally. So the future of synthetic biology and meat, as you say, is disruptive we will probably live to see a time when animal agriculture is basically over for the large part. And it's going to begin with that milk, and it's going to move rapidly into the meat and fish areas. And I think the thing that's going to surprise people is how fast it happens.
1: And from the sounds of it, it may also help us to finally escape this anthropogenic era we happen to be in.
2: Well, it certainly could. And if you've ever gone hiking in the northeast of the U.S., uh, a lot of those beautiful forests, you'll come across stone walls and old farmsteads where marginal farms fell back into wildlands because they weren't needed anymore. And we could see that on a global scale where we take some of that 40% of the total land area that we're using to feed us. And we let it go back to natural systems. And ultimately, if we can't do that, the future for the world's plants and animals is bleak. And we need them, so our future is bleak. So it's a gamble, but we could see a much greener future.
1: It's SAS Class Time, and today we're going to learn about how synthetic biology is helping to develop agricultural systems in Paraguay. Our guest teacher is Sabrina Maricos, and she is a research associate at the National University of Asuncion. She has helped to develop the first synthetic biology laboratory in Paraguay and has her pulse on how the world of synthetic biology is changing agriculture for the better. As you are about to hear, the movement is being met not with criticism, as you might expect, but with excitement. How did you become involved in synthetic biology for food security?
0: It all started in 2017 when, uh, at the institution where I'm working at, which is the University of Asuncion. It's the national university in the capital city of Paraguay. And they were uh, coming up with a professional development grant. And I was starting to get interested in Synthetic biology and specifically uh, biological engineering research. That's when I came up with a proposal of using that grant to uh, study synthetic biology in order to bring that knowledge back to Paraguay. I uh, ended up getting the grant and I went to Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, to be trained in synthetic biology and after the program, I went back to Paraguay and we opened the first synthetic biology lab in in the whole country. We decided that our focus would be uh, food security and um, the environment. So we are trying to focus on issues such as global climate change and also food security. So we are, we are currently trying to do research in soil, and and water efficiency for crops in Paraguay. We are currently um, growing crops in cotton, soybean, and maize. And since then, our focus is based on food security, but we are also expanding um, the scope and see what can we bring to the research.
1: What techniques are you looking at to conduct your research?
0: Well, we are interested in using CRISPR. Uh, It is a very, very cutting-edge technique that um, you might might know that everybody is interested in. And since CRISPR has a very sophisticated and efficient way to edit the genome, we want to work on the crops that we we have in Paraguay in order to make them more efficient for uh, water intake and nutrients intake from the soil.
1: Now, speaking of climate, you had just mentioned climate change, but what about the climate change with respect to genetically engineered crops? Is there a change going on where it's becoming more more reasonable to use those in a country like Paraguay?
0: So, yeah, definitely. In Paraguay, um, we used to have seasons of rain, and currently... We cannot predict when the rain is going to happen as a season. So we have it throughout the year, and that could be awesome for crops.
1: What is the perception of synthetic biology and genetically engineered plants, crops, bacteria, whatever in Paraguay?
0: Well, it's very interesting, actually, because you find a very extreme contrast between the perception uh, of the population in Paraguay. You may have uh, an extremely educated person, let's say a PhD in a field that may not be very related to science, let's say in economy or uh, politics, and they uh, would say that they don't support um, genetic engineering or maybe even vaccination, let's say. So you have that in one hand and then the, on the other hand you have uh, the public because um, last year in Paraguay we actually did a poll about the public perception on synthetic biology and the results came up and surprised us all. And the, the public were more interested about what it can be done than what that, the risks are. So um, to me, I think that Maybe the, the public, the normal person the, that can, can or cannot have an involvement in science, have more interest in learning and hearing about what it can be done.
1: As you know, we do a lot of importation here in Canada and the United States from South America for various fruits and vegetables and other produce. What is coming down the line in synthetic biology that perhaps we should be prepared for?
0: Well, I I think uh, in Paraguay we are quite far from coming up with this uh, yet because we still haven't covered all the basics of uh, technology that has been around for a while. So uh, for us, CRISPR would be the next step in a couple of years, but I know that currently in Brazil, for example, they are already coming up with uh, CRISPR uh, editing on cacao, as you said, maybe orange, may- maybe bananas, and maybe eucalyptus. And I've heard that somebody in Paraguay, since we um, grow stevia, we, uh, they were also interested in, in finding a way of editing stevia and having that as a national crop so that, that would be nice. Um, maybe in the following years we can
1: hear that. Genetically engineered stevia. I think the people out there who love their natural health foods and do not like GMOs are probably exploding right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably.
1: <laughs> so from your personal perspective, do you think that synthetic biology really is the future to being sure we have safe crops uh, moving forward?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that uh, the the tools that synthetic biology is coming up with have all the power to make gene editing more efficient so we can make crops less risky and make sure that the public gets that feeling of being safe and get the fear out of the question. So maybe um, the investment in synthetic biology, if it's done well, we can... Not only uh, work on the research, but also on the communication aspect of it. And as I told you before, that people think that this is cool. Maybe we can use that on our favor and, and expand from there.
1: Well, that's it for this week's SAScast. I hope it has helped you to modify your perspective on synthetic biology and its importance in our food future. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. and We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Zila Velasquez is our story producer and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.